promise, Lord, never again. But I also know that you know what a weak willed person I am. I'm a wonderful person. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen. Our reading for today comes from Ezekiel chapter 7, beginning at the first verse. The word of the Lord came to me, and you, O son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations, and my eye will not spare you. Nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes, an end has come. The end has come, it has awakened against you. Behold, it comes, your doom has come to you. O inhabitant of the land, The time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Behold the day. Behold, it comes. Your doom has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. None of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth. Neither shall there be preeminence among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude. For the seller shall not return to what he has sold while they live. For the vision concerns all their multitude, it shall not turn back, and because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I don't know if you feel it, 
But in reading these chapters, it feels almost like we are a rubber band that's under tension. You know, you're pulling it as tight and as tight and as tight as you possibly can before it breaks, right? And that seems to be what is happening here because uh, chapter 7 now, I didn't even finish the chapter, I only read to, to verse 13. Chapter 7 is sort of a continuation of chapter 6, where chapter 6 is talking about uh, all the destruction that's going to happen to the idols, right? All the breaking down of the idols, all the destruction that's going to happen to the people. But now we get into chapter 7, and it's almost like God is at the door. He's knocking. It's it's about that time for for things to come. And... Um, and what's going to end up happening is we're going to see another vision in, in chapter 8 that's going to deal with uh, a, a better idea uh, of what worship had turned into. Uh, chapter 9 is, is going to be another uh, another discussion of really the, the need for a cleansing. And then the ultimate in chapter 10 is the, the glory of the Lord actually leaving the temple. Whereas when the temple was was built and founded by Solomon, it was the glory of the Lord hit there so hard that no one was able to do anything, and 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 the same with the tabernacle. But here that we we see the opposite happening. But in chapter seven, we have the Lord preaching to the people uh, very specifically, uh, saying saying to them, uh, "This is what you're you're supposed to say, Ezekiel." It says the word of the Lord came to me. We always have to remember here uh, that it's something that happens upon Ezekiel wasn't as though Ezekiel made it up on his own, but God's word came to him, hit him hard. And he says, this is what you need to preach, an end. What a, what a quick sermon, right? It goes on for more, but an end. Uh, just like those, those old time preachers, the end is nigh, right? The end's near, it's here. An end, this is what you're going to preach, an end. Things are going to come to an end. That's a, that's a sermon that I think none of us want to preach, right? And none of us want to hear. My predecessor in my first call, uh, Daryl Morton, wonderful, a wonderful preacher, wonderful man of God, a, a blessing to me. I was blessed in my first call to have him be a part of my congregation for an extended period of time. Uh, he had, he had spent, uh, a few decades as a chaplain in the Air Force, um, and he and I came from a very similar uh, theological background, and so it was wonderful to, to take his place as the pastor of these two churches. Um, but I remember him telling me about how a sermon went where he started it with, you are going to die. That's not a sermon that we want to hear, right? That's not a sermon that we ever want to hear. And here, Ezekiel comes with this sermon, an end. There's going to be an end of you, Judah. Never mind, Israel, you're already gone to Assyria. Judah, you are going to come to an end. You think you are so much better than your northern brothers and sisters and and the, the nations that are around you. But you are going to come to an end. An end is coming. All it says is an end. The end has come upon the four corners of the land. 
meaning that there's no town that is going to escape what God is going to do. It's not going to happen on the on the wrong side of the tracks. It's going to happen on both sides of the tracks. The, the, the people that, that live in the suburbs that think they are sheltered and the people that live in the poorest hovel of the inner city and, and, and vice versa, those who, who live out in rural areas that barely have running water and, and those who live on mountaintops with uh, million-dollar homes. None of that is going to protect you. None of that is going to save you. And there's a sense almost of saying that it's for the sake of this land that God is acting because we, we find out later in, in Second Chronicles that part of the reason why they are sent into exile for 70 years is because of the fact that they did not follow the prescribed necessity of keeping a Sabbath for the land, giving giving the land a Sabbath to be able to to rest from from harvesting and from planting and all those other things, uh, a, a thing that God is going to be doing for the sake of the promised land. That God actually has a heart for the land, not just for the people. It says now the end is upon you. And I will send my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abominations, saying, The wait's over. The wrath, the, the wrath that I'm bringing, the anger that I'm bringing, is not an accident. It is purposeful. Uh, I will let loose my anger upon you, is, is the more direct translation from, from the Hebrew. It's, it's not a whimsical thing. There is a reason for this. Uh, that that uh, I will judge you according to your ways and I will punish you for all your abominations. That those things are there in front of them. That it's not something that has happened in the past and they've cleaned up their act and now they're being judged. It's, it's that they're still in that situation as Paul writes to us. Uh, right while we were still sinners Christ died for us well here while you are still sinners I am going to act God says to the people of Judah. That, that there's this sense almost as you read it that mercy is off the table. But the justice and the judgment of God uh, are, are coming. Those two things are coming. This decision that he's made and this justice, this righteousness that he's going to bring about. Uh, and, and it's going to come about uh, in the midst of the evil that is being done, the, the perversion that is happening within Judah, this idolatry that they have that, that Ezekiel uh speaks of as an adultery, right? A whoring after other gods that we saw. And yet, uh, at the same time, there's a mercy connected here because he doesn't say, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to wipe you out like I did the, the world at the time of Noah. No, I'm going to punish you. But it's going to, in a, in a sense, almost it's going to be for your own good that even uh, before repentance happens, while you are still worshiping these idols that you love more than me, I'm going to punish you to prove to you that these idols are worthless, that they cannot save you from me, that they've put their heart into these other idols and I'm going to bring you down in order to raise you up. I'm going to put you to death so that eventually there's going to be a resurrection. That is the Christian life for us, church. That it is that that sometimes uh, we do not understand the, the difficulties that are going to come into our life. We do not understand how God, God might possibly very truly hand us 
hardship and suffering and pain for a reason. God is bigger than us. We, we, we cannot know the mind of God, and, and we don't necessarily have to like it. But there's never a whimsical reason for why pain and suffering come upon us. It can come upon us because another human being decided that they were going to harm us. That's one way, right? And and their God shows up to say, I can use that. And he uses it to, to bring about a resurrection in our lives, to bring about new life. Um, but then there are also times that, that God brings a, a punishment upon us in some way, a discipline, as, as Hebrews talks about it, in which we are disciplined by him in, an, in order to strengthen our faith in order to uh, maybe carve out some of the, the sin that needs to be removed from our lives, in order to bring us low, to humble us so that we know that we must lean on him. There, there's, a, there's a whole reasoning behind this. And here God is saying to, to Judah, I'm going to come to you in the midst of, of your idolatry, and I'm going to punish you so that you know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I'm the only one. I will punish you for your ways while your abominable nations are in your midst. That that uh, a There's going to be a move of reconciliation, though, right? Because it is being done for the purpose of what? To know that I am the Lord. That, that's the movement that God is doing. That's the movement that God is doing all throughout Ezekiel. We've already talked about this. It's going to be that, that word we're going to hear from Ezekiel multiple times and multiple times, that you will know that I am the Lord, that this is happening for a purpose. What is that? That you will know me, God says. Not, not just in the sense of know of me or know some information about me, but be attached to me in, in a, particular, a particular way. And then it says... Uh, Thus says the Lord, disaster after disaster, behold, it comes. Uh, uh, reading, um, reading Dr. Cohen's uh, commentary on Ezekiel that I love from Cicino Press. It's very small, but very succinct. He talks about how uh, it's actually, instead of disaster after disaster, it's evil, a singular evil, a particular evil, that this this evil, this disaster that's going to come upon you is actually this destruction of the temple is what he points to. Uh, another commentator uh, from, a, from another, um, from the Edersheim commentary that I use for, for Ezekiel as well, talks about how it actually fits in with the three exiles that happen where the exile that, that Daniel goes under uh, with Jehoiakim, then the Jehoiakim and Sanhedrin exile, and then finally the, the exile under Zedekiah and the final destruction of the temple, these back-to-back-to-back destructions that are going to happen, that it's, there's not going to be this reprieve, that one's going to come, and then another's going to come, and then another's going to come, that, that to make very sure that certain things are going to take place. And, and, and to say uh, an end has come, he says in verse 6, the end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it comes. And, and uh, your doom has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. That, that word doom actually can be translated multiple different multiple different ways. Uh, one of them being morning or dawn. I was reading about that there's... Um, this new day starting in a way you can say that that there's something new happening here and it's going to be a transformation of time 
for you, a change in time for you, and this is going to be a time of exile, a time away from the land, a time away, uh, in a sense, in your own mind from the from the Lord, uh, or it can also mean that the dawn of your age is over. Uh, was another interpretation uh, from some older rabbis. Uh, but there is this sense that there's a turning now. There's a change in what is going to be taking place. The time has come, the day is near, a day of tumult and not of joyful shouting on the mountains. Uh, that uh, A day is, is near. Uh, it's, it's a day that's going to be a troublesome day. And this day is going to uh, do two things. Either one, the sense is that, that all the joy that you're having in your worship in those high places that we talked about before, these, these high places where you'd be going and worshiping these other idols, all of that's going to be gone. There's going to be none of that worship happening anymore. All those joyful shoutings on the, on the mountaintops, all those festivals, they're going to be muted. They're going to be done. You are not going to have a voice to be able to do that. The other side of the interpretation is this, uh, is this word can also mean an echoing uh, in, the, in the sense of uh, if you uh, have ever been in the mountains, depending on where you are, oftentimes you can hear a good echo as you're around in a, cab, in a canyon and, and you might not know a sense of where something is coming. And so you might hear a noise and you might think an army is coming, but it's not really coming, saying that, that uh, these are not going to be echoes that you are going to hear in the mountains, that really, truly an army is coming to clean house. And this army is going to come uh, as, as my instrument of war upon you. And then, then after verse 7, verses 8 uh, and, and 9 are, are very much like, it's almost a repetition, a poetic repetition of what we've already heard. Now I'll soon pour out my wrath upon you and spend my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your abominations. We've already heard that. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a dangerous place to be, a, a place with a pitiless God, a God that is not merciful. That's, that's very terrifying. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst, then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Saying that night I'm not just this Lord who doesn't act, who sits up in heaven and does nothing, but I am a Lord who's going to bring about a particular work amongst you that will not be fun. And then verse 10, behold the day, behold it comes your doom again, your, your morning, your dawn has come. The rod has blossomed. Pride has budded. Uh, to an, another interesting thing here with this, this rod blossoming and this pride budding, uh, it, meaning that it's come to, to fruition. It's come to a fruitfulness. And either one, it's the sense of this, this rod of destruction and this pride that was coming from, from Nebuchadnezzar and, and Babylon, uh, they're, they're ready to pounce in the sense of they're ready to come and do their work. But there's also the sense of that the evil within Israel, the turning away from God, the turning after other gods, uh, which has led to a harming of one another, has come to full fruition. And it is time for a, a work to be done on the part of God, right? Because he says, violence has grown up into a rod of wickedness. 
meaning that there is this 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 thing that is happening in your midst that is causing quite quite a a, a large amount of 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 pain and and heartache and destruction. But then he says, none of them shall remain, nor their abundance, nor their wealth, neither shall there be preeminence among them. I, I like this section because there's it, it lists off three things that we can put our hope in that God is going to break down. Uh, one, it says their abundance. This actually should be translated closer to wealth. The things that you've brought in, the abundance of your possession, those, those things. Why do we hope in those things, church? Why do we place our hope in in gold and silver and bank accounts and cars and houses and all those things that we spend uh, two-thirds of our life anxiously toiling, hoping that we can retire at 62 or 65 or 67 or whatever your target age is, worrying that we won't have enough to be able to survive after that? so that we can try and retire and do nothing because that's our goal to, to, to go and collect seashells or whatever. Well, I'm sorry, but I've been, I've done enough funerals as a pastor. I've been to enough cemeteries there. All your wealth does is get you a nicer tombstone, maybe a vault, right? An obelisk, some sort of really nice tomb, but it does nothing in the end. You're just rotting bones. Or if you've been cremated, there's zero difference between you and somebody else. You're a pile of dirt, right? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? So why, why do we place our pride in our wealth? Well, Israel was doing the same thing. Judah was doing the same thing. Thinking that in that wealth was this notion of blessing from God, and God is saying that's going to be taken away. And then the next one is nor their wealth. And this actually I was reading in one of my commentaries because I love words, right? I was reading one of my commentaries that this word actually is, is closer to the notion of offspring, the things that are theirs. That, that for, for uh, the Israelites in particular, there's this hope of eternal life found in genealogies in the sense of this continuation of life uh, uh, carrying on your name to the next generation. Right? We have that weird interaction between Jesus and the, the Sadducees about resurrection, how, how a, a man is supposed to uh, take the place of his brother in his marriage to carry on his family lineage, right? This, this, to, to make sure that he still has a name amongst the people. That, that offspring, that children are connected to this blessing and this goodness and this inheritance and this life with God. And God is saying, no, your children are not going to be rescued either. And then he also, uh, besides that, then goes on to talk about this preeminence, uh, which can be, be tied to two different things. Either one, pride, uh, if you take the actual word preeminence, uh, neither shall there be preeminence among them. Everyone will be broken. Both the prideful and the humbled will be brought low. But also it, it carries with it the sense in the Hebrew of wailing or mourning, that there's going to be no one left to mourn over you, Judah, that, that the people who would mourn for you will have lost their voice. I wonder how often we felt in that place too. He says, the time has come, the day has arrived. 
Let not the buyer rejoice, nor the seller mourn, for wrath is upon all their multitude, for the seller shall not return to what was what he has sold while they live. This is connected to the notion of the year of Jubilee, uh, to the selling of inheritance, where someone might come under an economic burden. And so the only thing they can do is to take their piece of the inheritance, their piece of the pie in the promised land, sell it to their neighbor, and they get money and they're able to live. And then uh, in the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, all the property gets returned to, to its family of origin, to the family that, that is connected to, connected to it by inheritance, saying that the, the buyer will rejoice because they've expanded their inheritance for a while. And the seller will mourn because they will have lost their their portion in that inheritance. And to say to say to them that that you are all going into exile. You you will you will there will be no need to worry about selling an ancestral land or gaining of inheritance. Uh, there's uh, no worry about losing place. No worry about losing ownership uh, because there's no return. God's not going to show favoritism here. That that all will be going into exile. There's no going to be. There's not going to be a right to ownership. There's not going to be an escape for this. And he concludes with this phrase: "Because of his iniquity, none can maintain his life." That is a word that we can cling to, isn't it, Church? Because of his iniquity, none can cl- can maintain his life. That is the, the, the bedrock of where we begin as Christians, where this, where this chapter has to tell you about how God looks upon sin and the reason why he sent his son to fix these things, to bring about a redemption, a reconciliation, a mercy into the life of the world, to grant unto you the life that is is needed through Jesus Christ because you are not able to do it on your own. That it is that only through Jesus Christ, through the reconciliation that we have with him, the fact that when God looks at us and all our sin and all our idolatry, what he sees is Christ because of the beautiful exchange that we've received. Christ gets all our sin. We get all his righteousness. And so it is that even, even there in the midst of the exile, in the midst of these warning words from Ezekiel, the, the hope for the people hearing that would be the hope of this Messiah to come, this one who will save them from their sins, not to make them better people or nicer people or to make the world a better place, but to save people from the prison of their own sinfulness, that they might be servants of God and lovers of God. And that is the hope that we have here, this grace that we receive, the ability for us to acknowledge that we are those prideful ones going after so many things more wild than Jesus. And there hangs Jesus on the cross, dead, buried, but then also alive in an empty tomb to prove to us that God's offer of forgiveness is true and it has come in him and it is a finished work. Let us pray. Lord God, on this day you revealed your Son to the nations by the leading of a star. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, you filled us with the new light of the Word who became flesh and lived among us. Let the light of our faith shine in all we do through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Well, church, thank you so much for all the sharing that you've been doing lately. We've been seeing a rather large increase in those who have been listening to our podcast. Some of those concentrated around one sermon I gave a long time ago. I don't know why. But if you're enjoying what you're hearing here, if you could please share that. Pass it on to others um, that they they might be able to, to grow in their faith and their love for this God who has come to us in Jesus Christ to save us from ourselves and to make us his own that go in peace serve the lord amen